Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and the Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of death, Neil Garfield. Your Honor, this is a standard foreclosure. That's the first lie told in court, as lawyers and companies claiming to be servicers, lenders, or trustees continue to play their game of lying for dollars. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida, this eighth day of April, 2021. Thanks for joining me. It's obvious I have not simplified the explanation enough because both lawyers and homeowners still mostly don't understand what I'm talking about. But there are lawyers and pro se litigants who understand enough to win, and they do win. Mostly, most don't, and that means they can't use it effectively, as I have, and that means the judge won't have any idea what you're talking about. But let me say again, because this is the mistake that everybody seems to be falling into. They think they have to prove something. They don't. Any effort to allege affirmatively the explanation I'm giving you about securitization is going to fall flat. You're going to lose. You can allege it, but you can't prove it. And the rule is, don't allege something that you can't prove. They have the information and proof, and you don't. They are making the claim, not you. You are defending the claim. But you can establish the position that the documents used by your opposition can't be trusted. Or more precisely, you are allowed by the rules of procedure to seek to establish that their documents cannot be trusted. That's an important distinction. It's merely in the seeking that you end up winning the case. More importantly, you can prove that the lawyers opposing you cannot be trusted. And that means the opposition must prove their case by reference to well-founded, relevant testimony from competent witnesses as to an actual transaction, proof of payment, all the other things I've talked about. And they can't do that because they don't have any such witness or document. They can only win if the judge applies legal presumptions from the documents that they fabricated. If they can't or won't answer simple questions about the existence, ownership, authority, and right to enforce the alleged debt, note, and mortgage, they, they lose the right to the, to the legal presumptions, and they have nothing else. 
after the judge orders them to comply with your demands for discovery, then you attack, not to prove that they are lying, but rather to prove that they are refusing to follow court rules and court orders, which you have obtained based on your motion and your notice of hearing and the actual hearing in court where the judge grants your motion. In cross-examination, the attack must be more sophisticated than that, but in discovery, it's much easier. We all know the deck is stacked against homeowners. The best antidote to a lousy position in court is getting the judge mad at the other side. But don't be stupid and get the judge mad at you unless that is a tactical decision you are making. I've done that to good advantage. Sometimes it's a valid approach to get the judge with his neck vein sticking out. That's how I win. And that's how homeowners across the country have won. By the attack on the factual validity of the presumptions that are being applied. And that's how all homeowners who are faced with false claims of securitization or false claims of ownership, where there's MERS or other signs of claim securitization in the background, that's how they've won. So let me take a stab at another type of explanation of what happened. I concede that this is difficult to, for anyone to comprehend, including many Wall Street investment bankers. They only know parts of this. This will be the show tonight. My attempt at simplifying, oversimplifying, the explanation of why homeowners should win every time in the context of claims of securitization this will be an oversimplification. It is an example, an analogy of the progression of events that occur when a legitimate loan is claimed to be subject to what is called securitization. In other words, where somebody claims to have bought the loan from the original lender, and that's really what seems to have occurred. Remember that no asset is securitized unless it is sold in whole or in part to investors because that's what securitization means. It doesn't mean anything else. And remember that there is no evidence anywhere that any claim securitization scheme has produced investors who own your loan or the loan of anyone else. It just never happened. And that means all claims arising from the claimed securitization are false. Not might be false, they are false. So let's move on with it. Let's say you have a credit card balance of $1,000 and the interest rate is 7%. So I go to some people I know and say, tell them, I intend to acquire your debt. I ask them for a loan to acquire your debt. So they give me $1,000, which is a loan to me. And I agree to pay them 5%, 
Notice the difference. Your credit card balance is subject to interest at 7% in my example. And I'm only agreeing to pay the investors 5%, and they're agreeing to take it because they can only get 3 or 4% on the open market. What I've done is I've sold them an IOU, a note. You could also, if you want to use a liberal construction of words, call it a bond or a debenture or something like that. But the IOU promises scheduled payments and nothing more. That's the same as the certificates that have been sold to investors who thought that they were buying into REMIX, real estate mortgage investment conduits. Meanwhile, I don't buy your debt. I pocket the whole $1,000 because the IOU was issued in the name of a trust I create an account on my books that shows the sale of your debt to the trust and nothing has happened. And I book for reporting purposes, I book a trading profit putting the money that investors gave me into, let's say, an overseas account. Then I issue purchase or trade in more contract securities and insurance policy based upon the market value of the IOU I issued to my investors, not your credit card account. If you miss a payment, or even if I say you missed a payment when you didn't, I can declare an event, and that triggers a payment to me by the additional investors as well as enabling me to claim that I don't have to pay my investors uh, the same amount that I originally agreed. So when all is said and done, I've pocketed several times the amount of your debt without ever taking the risk of buying it or owning it, and certainly no risk of losing money if you don't pay it. If you don't pay it, it is the credit card company, you know, remember them? That That's who you owe the money to, that issued you the card and takes the loss. Now, let me pause a moment here and say that where securitization is present at the start of the transaction with the homeowner, it's slightly different, but I'm not covering that tonight. This goes back to the 1990s and early 2000s when real loans were being supposedly acquired. They certainly were paid off by investment banks through an intricate web of accounts and conduits. Since I'm getting $12 for each dollar of your debt, I could pay off your credit card company to make sure that they won't try to enforce your debt. Because once your debt vanishes, my whole infrastructure of all these contracts and securities and so forth, that's over, and I might owe money back. Your debt is paid in full if I make that payment, but 
So I give a thousand dollars, but I got twelve thousand dollars, so I'm only down to eleven thousand dollars. Your debt's paid in full, but you don't even know that. So you keep making payments. And with each payment you make, you're reinforcing the idea that you actually still owe money, even though the account has been wiped out. Now, if you stop making payments for any reason, I must take action. Because if I don't, it will be obvious the debt doesn't exist and the whole superstructure, infrastructure, that I built over your debt with certificates and contracts and insurance and so forth, it all collapses. So I get a friendly bank to say that they are the trustee of my trust that issued the IOUs to the investors, and I get their permission to use their name in an action to collect the debt. I pay them a fee for that service. They have no interest in the debt note or mortgage, and they are indemnified from any claim or something that is declared to be a false claim in using their name. Then I create a series of documents in which it looks like the debt was transferred to me and then the trust. But none of those documents report anything that happened in the real world. There were no sales of the debt. And now I have designated a company to act as a servicer who is not allowed to touch any money coming from you or the proceeds of collection. They will nonetheless, at my instruction and by agreement with me, claim to be the authorized administrator, collector, and enforcer of your debt, which at this point no longer exists. It is almost always true that at the point of enforcement, the debt has previously been wiped out in the context of securitization. And I have instructed this servicer to hire a law firm that enjoys the doctrine of litigation immunity. So they can assert what might be true rather than what is true. Kind of the job of a lawyer. I know you all hate that. It is true that you incurred a debt. It is not true that you owe it to me. You incurred a debt with the credit card company. You did not incur a debt to me, and I never bought it. If I had bought it, I would have received an assignment in my name. And if I had bought it, I would be carrying that receivable on my books now, which was transferred from the credit card company. But none of that happened. It might be true because it might be true that you, owe, that you owe money to the trust, the trustee, or the servicer, because there are documents that I have created, fabricated, that confirm in style and content what is required by statute. Those kind of documents that I fabricated say the trustee is the administrator of a trust 
that owns your debt. And of course, since I was fabricating documents, actually hiring someone else to fabricate them, I had to hire employees or independent contractor, independent contractors whose sole job was to sign and notarize them. So the law firm, under the guidance of the servicer, who actually has no interest or authority, sues you for the debt naming the friendly bank as trustee of the trust, which has nothing in it, claiming the trust is its client when clearly neither the trustee nor the trust is a client. But in an indirect way, it might be a client because it was hired by the servicer uh, who gave instructions to file suit on behalf of the trustee for the trust. So the lawyer is going to say, well, I don't know that there was no real relationship between me and the trustee. Uh, all I know is that this company is the servicer for the trustee, and they told me to file suit. It's kind of circular logic, but it's very effective in court. And the judge says, you got this loan, didn't you? And you reply, yes, because you're truthful. You agreed to pay it back, didn't you? And you reply, yes, because you are truthful. So the judge looks at the paperwork, which appears to be in perfect order, or at least initially, because he's really just glancing at skimming, and takes your admissions as evidence and enters judgment against you for a debt that's already been paid off. Your defense narrative that the name plaintiff does not exist, even if it did, and, and even if it did, does not own your debt, falls on deaf ears. Frankly, that's the way the legal system is supposed to work. That's how it was structured. <coughs> the judge is relying upon the paperwork more than anything else. That paperwork raises presumptions of fact that are not true like for value received, but the law requires the judge to rule based on those assumptions unless the presumptions obviously come from an untrustworthy source. Although the servicers and trustees at all have been shown hundreds of times to be untrustworthy in the use of fabricated, forged, backdated, and robo-signed documents, they are for reasons that confound me, still not considered to be presumptively untrustworthy or even raising enough of a question of credibility for the judge to rule that the legal presumptions of fact do not apply. Rejecting the presumptions would mean that I would have to prove transactions that never occurred, prove that the trust maintains a loan account receivable which has been receiving payments, prove that those payments have been allocated to a party who has paid value for the underlying obligation as required by statute. Since I can't prove those things, I lose unless the presumptions are applied. If I lose, it is apparent that I never acquired the loan never intended to acquire, acquire the loan, and don't carry it as an asset on my books. And I carry no risk of loss that would be covered by any collection or enforcement action. 
because I've already gotten $12,000. Uh, $12, but I still get to keep the money I've received from the investors, even if I lose. The only ones that get to claim anything are those that are willing to file a suit claiming that I promised to acquire loans and didn't. But their claim is not so great because I never promised them payments that I received from you, the debtor or borrower or homeowner. In fact, I might offer you a modified loan or a refinance loan in which you are lured into actually doing business with me indirectly instead of me just faking it. Now we actually have an agreement with a servicer supposedly servicer, who acts as the lender and who is acting solely in accordance with my instructions. The bonus for me is that I get to claim that this is a new transaction, unknown to you, and involving a new $1,000 debt, and I get to sell new certificates, securities, and contracts based upon the new, the so-called new loan, a loan that was never a loan uh, as far as I was concerned, because I still had never paid anything to you or anyone else in exchange for ownership of a loan contract and the responsibilities that that would entail. I paid the original lender to step out of the way so my Ponzi scheme would not be exposed. The loan is over and has been over for years. It has been reduced to a reference point for the sale of securities. I paid the credit card company, but with the express intent of not becoming a lender who must comply with lending laws and the express intent of not assuming any risk that I could lose any money as a result of this transaction being a loan that does not perform. If I get the judgment and the payment, it goes into my pocket. Not the trustee, not the trust, not the servicer, just me. If you pay off the debt, I get the money, not the investors, not the trustee, not the trust, nobody. You will never learn that your payment did not reduce your debt or that your debt was never eliminated or satisfied. Your, every payment you make to me is pure revenue, and that's the scheme. And that's how it is reflected in my books and records. But for tax purposes, I lie. I report the receipts of anything you pay or any monies I've received as the return of loan or return of capital. I pay no taxes on the pure profits rolling in from investors and debtors like you. So how do you use this? It's not that hard. Every document being used against you is being used because it supposedly has evidentiary value. According to law, each document that confirms or conforms to what we ordinarily expect from a note, mortgage, assignment, or endorsement, or a lodge, raises the inference and often the legal presumption that the document is authentic and valid, and more importantly, that everything written on the document is true and correct. It is not enough to deny the truth of the hearsay statements contained within the documents. 
once they are accepted into evidence. Once they're accepted into evidence, they're in. You must accept the burden and satisfy your burden of persuasion and proof to rebut the presumption. Either that or you lose. Simple as that. That's where most people who are not well acquainted with the way the court system works, that's where they fail in litigation. The other place they fail is simply by letting the thing go in, in default. The simplest explanation of how you rebut the, the presumption is by analyzing, analyzing the document and reframing it to be asserted a specific fact. You'll need the help of a forensic investigator, a lawyer, or a legal consultant to do this effectively. So, for example, when an assignment says, for value received, that is a statement of fact that someone paid value to the so-called grantor of the instrument. That is going to be the evidence unless you conduct discovery or effective cross-examination those questions should be the, uh, along the lines of, well, you said for value received. How was the value paid? Where? In what form? When? Who were the parties to that transaction? Who were the people that were present? Was there any other agreement or correspondence affecting this transaction, etc.? If it was money paid, you would ask, show me the cancel check or the wire transfer receipt. Now, in a perfect world, you would get non-evasive answers to such questions, but you will not get that in foreclosure litigation. If they were being honest, they never would have filed the case to begin with. So you need to be very specific about what you're asking for, which must always consist of what must be true if they are not lying about everything. In foreclosure litigation, none of those things exist, so they will either raise objections or ignore the demand or be evasive by referring you back to the documents that you are questioning. The fact that it is a response narrows what you can accuse them of. The fact that the response was totally unresponsive is something that you can bring up in front of the judge. You must be tenacious, you must be persistent, and you must be unrelenting to the point where you can clearly demonstrate that the opposition is not complying with either court rules or court orders. When you're in that position, that's when you have them in your sights and you can shoot down their claim. Now, when I talk about getting the judge riled up against the other side, it's a multi-step process. Judges are used to lawyers forgetting, avoiding, evading all the time. 
you have to establish footprints in the sand where you are showing that they are repeatedly violating the rules of court, where you have gotten multiple orders from this judge that says that they are supposed to appear at mediation with an actual person who has full authority to settle and could could take a cash offer, or someone uh, uh, who has specific knowledge of a particular thing. You must establish multiple footprints. And what I did in one case was I put it in writing in my final motion for sanctions, at what point do this court's orders mean anything at all? Because they've already been ordered to comply, and they haven't. That's where you want to get to. That's how you win. Thanks for joining me tonight. I'll be back next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.